may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, we're going to be there for the day. Matthew chapter 16. As Brent said, it's been 10 years since the, the attack. You remember where you were on 911? You remember what you were doing when you first found out the first tower? Exactly where I was. I remember what exactly what I was doing. And that, like, what's happening? And then you get the report, or actually we're watching the TV when the second plane hit. And then the address by the president. And everybody was saying, uh, God bless America. They were saying that, obviously, we can't solve this on our own. What I also found interesting was how quickly we moved from that as a nation. It seemed like it was almost a mantra, and then we moved on from there. Things seemed to get better. But, you know, if you were to characterize the last ten years, I think one of the key words you would use is just the word uncertain. It seems like so many things are uncertain. And yet, if you go throughout history, it's always been like that. Maybe because of the media. Maybe because it's just before the Lord's return, it seems to be accelerating. And we are able to know every little inch of this world instantaneously. But the word is uncertain. There's national uncertainty. We don't know if we're going to be attacked again, even before the end of the day. And then there's a whole financial situation in our nation. And that's uncertain. And our prosperity seems to be taken from us with every passing bill. There's all kinds of uncertainty. And then there's all the issues with the weather. And you have tornadoes and hurricanes and flooding and fires and wars and rumors of wars and all the destruction that does on people's lives. And then you have uncertainty with relationships. Have you ever had a relationship where you thought you could definitely, uh, man, if there was anybody that would not stab me in the back, it'd be that person, and yet that's the one that did it? You ever been there? Have relationships in your life at times failed? Maybe you were the one that failed it. Maybe you were the one that was supposed to come through and, and watch their back, and you didn't do that. But uncertainty in relationships, or maybe it's uncertainty with the job situation, and your own personal finances. And sometimes it's a very scary thing, right? You don't know what the next day holds. Or maybe it's just health. I didn't say just health, but... And you're waiting for that report, or you're waiting for the report to come back on one of your kids, or maybe one of your relatives. I just had a... My uncle just died this last week. He was one of the... One of the men that had the greatest impact on me coming to the Lord, Uncle Louie. And uh, I was able to sit down with him a few months ago, but it was coming. He was very confident. He just said, pray for grace. He knew he was passing into eternity. But still, uncertain as to the day and as to the hour. Probably one of the hardest things for me as a father and grandfather now is the uncertainty about my children. You know, it's like, well, whatever happens to me in one sense, but it's my kids, it's my children, it's my wife, it's 
those immediately surrounding me. See, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ came to bring hope. And I, I just wanted to center on this passage because this is one of the most hopeful passages of all of Scripture. Because it's not just talking about just our salvation, but it's our salvation as it pertains to the body of Christ, the church. See, Christ wants to bring hope. Christ wants to bring certainty in your life. Now, there's a lot of things that you're not going to be certain about, most of which I just talked about. But there are things that you can be certain of. Okay, And we need to make sure that we're not people of despair. People Sometimes even Christians become hopeless, depressed, frustrated, hurt. And they allow that to just kind of uh, uh, rule their lives. And yet this is a passage, as one man said, one of the greatest promises ever made to the church on their behalf by Christ himself. See, when it comes to the church, now I've talked about relationships and financial and national and health. And, and, but when it comes to the church, even when it comes to the church of Christ, some people Look at that with a hopelessness. This is what some of the people would say of the church. They look at it that the the church has a lack of spiritual leadership. uh, Pessimistic as to the future of the church. Many times they'll say that the church is at a crossroads. It's funny how many times I hear that throughout the many years. That they're in crises. That it's directionless. That it's in decline. The Church of Christ is in decline. By the way, it is true that some of the congregations, some of the denominations, some of the groups are in decline. But let's talk about the Church Universal. That somehow we need to become more relevant, that we have to become more like our culture if it's going to survive. If we don't do that, the church is going down. It's not going to survive. Some of the the mega movements that are out there as pertaining to the church, that's what's driving it. Well, we have to, we're losing our effectiveness. We have to re-engineer the church. We have to really kind of veer from the scriptures. This was good for first century, but it's not good for today. But again, let's look at what Jesus said about the church. And again, the church being those who are trusting in the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, that's who the church is made up of. In verse 13 of chapter 16, Matthew 16, 13. And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Again, Son of Man points back to his humanity. And so they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some Elijah. Others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, basically, you're a great man. That's what they're saying. You're a great man. You're a man who speaks for God. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Because though that is true, I am a great man, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are, notice the definite articles, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And God, there's also definite articles, four times definite articles. So it says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. You're not just some great man. You are God himself. God come in the flesh. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, this is who you are. And those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ must 
have already understood this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. He's the God-man. He's the God-man who came to this earth for sinners, and His sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to completely wipe out all of our sins who have put their faith in Him and have brought us into the kingdom, into His family. The Son of the living God. And look at verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And we've got to look at this verse more carefully. What is he talking about? Because he's saying the hope is in this rock. Okay? On this rock. What is this rock? And In fact, let's just, so you know, this is what he's getting at. In fact, if you haven't, you might want to do this. Put a line under verse 18 on this rock. Put another line underneath where it says, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and put a line between those two. Because the rock he's talking about is the confession that Peter had just made. Now you might say, well, how do you know this? Because he he uses a, a play on words. He says, Peter, Petros, which means movable stone, and rock is the word Petra, which means immovable stone. So he's saying, listen, what you said, Peter, is correct. And, how, and it's unfortunate. Some have said, no, that we are built on, the, on Peter. No, we're built on the confession of Peter, of what Peter just said. That Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. That's the rock. That's, that's, what we, that's what's unshakable. By the way, that word rock is bedrock. Have you ever been building anything and hit bedrock? It doesn't go any farther. It takes a lot of effort to even drill through. Jesus says, I am the bedrock of the faith. You know, it, it, we need to ask some questions as we're going through this thing called Christianity and church life and moving through and, and uh, what are we depending on? Who, who are we hoping in? And especially as it comes to the church, let me ask you some questions. Who knows more about the current needs of this church, Christ or man? Who can provide better for this church, Christ or man? From whom did the original idea of the church come from, (laughs) Christ or man? In whom rests the church's future hope? Who built this church up until now? And again, when we say church, I'm not not talking about Alfred Allman, I'm talking about Church Universal. All the Christians that are around this entire planet that have been there since Pentecost till the day he returns. I mean, who do we trust for the future direction of the church? Even more penetrating, who owns and sustains this church and the church universal? For whose glory does the church exist? Who is the head? Who is the shepherd? Who is the builder of the church? And again, all the answers are Christ, right? See, this is the exciting thing. There is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of chaos. And a lot of the people who are in control are making all the wrong choices. I think it's part of the the deception. And it's part of being uh, the the depravity of, of the mind. But you know what? We can have absolute confidence in the direction that Christ has for His people called the church. And, when that, and if you are a person who has put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, you're part of that church. And you can have that hope. You can have that certainty. You can live life with, with understanding and with confidence, right? Because Jesus Christ is building His church. If you're part of it, He's building you along the way. It's not just corporately. He's, he's building you personally. 
Well, let's, build, let's, let's break this down. Because he's promised a number of things. Now again, I use the word promise very carefully. Think about this. When you promise something, by the way, some of you have been in homes where the father, let's say, promised you something and then you were broken hearted because he didn't come through on the promise. Have you ever been there? Someone promised you something till death do, you, do us part and they broke the promise. Promises are broken often, especially you know, in our society. But here are promises from the Almighty One. The one who said, I am the way, the truth. Okay, He's the truth teller. And here he's telling us truth. These are promises by Christ himself as to pertaining to things about the church. Things that we can bank on, as it were. The first is he promised an enduring foundation. You might want to fill in, I think there's eight of them or whatever. An enduring foundation. Again, going back to the play on words. You are Peter. You're Petros. You're movable. You're shifty. You're like a pebble. You ever see pebbles on, in the ocean, you know, and they, just, and they just keep rolling back and forth? They're fun to collect because they smooth them out, but the point is they just move. On this rock, Petra, I'll build my church. On the rock of the confession that you just made about me, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, that's an enduring foundation. He wasn't making the promise to Peter. He was just a movable. He was making a promises to the immovable. The bedrock. I think of times where we used to be in the the great vineyard, even in spring, and boy, you could pound post real quick and they'd go right down. But there are certain spots in our our area where it's just bedrock within about six inches, eight inches. I mean, bang, no farther. That's what you want to find. You want to find bedrock. You want to make sure you build your life on bedrock truth. In fact, this is the same word that's found in Matthew 7 where talking about the foolish man who built his house on sand and the wise man who built his house on the rock. It says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, Matthew 7, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, the Petra. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Question, are you building your house on the rock? Are you building your house? Are you building your faith? Are you building your hopes on the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a very penetrating question because, you know what? We can have a lot of functional gods. What do I mean? I mean this. You know, sometimes we Christians get saved. I mean, truly saved. I mean, they've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But then they start adding other things into our life. Or actually, they're already there. Gods with a small g. Things that are helping them, things that are helping them to have security, things that are giving them a sense of assurance, things that are giving them a sense of hope. But it's not on the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be on your job, it might be on your relationships, it might be on a full checkbook, it might be on the fact that you have solid uh, friendships. We can create a lot of other little gods that create uh, security in our life. And yet, the enduring foundation that Jesus is talking about here is, listen, no, build your life on the fact that who I am, that I am the Christ, that's Messiah. That's the promised one. That's the one that was going to redeem the people, okay? The Savior, the Christ, the Son, okay? The one in connection with God, the Trinity, second person, of the living, not dead, God. I'm the living one. And though He was dead... Yet does he live? See, we have to build our 
our foundation, that permanent foundation, bedrock on Jesus Christ. I love the word rock. Don't you love the word rock? I mean, just think about how solid that is. Over in Psalms 18, verse 2, it says, The Lord is my rock. He actually uh, continues to emphasize. He says, He's my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Now think about this. Here's, Here's the psalmist saying, I need to take refuge. I need to, sometimes it's like it's a fortress. Things are just crushing in on me, but He's my fortress. Sometimes I feel like I'm just being blown away with the circumstances of life. He's my rock. This is where I take refuge. In the end of that chapter of Psalms 18, it says, "For, For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? I like the word. He uses our. It's not just impersonal. He's my God. Is He your God? Is He your God that you're trusting in right now? In other words, if we get up in the morning and flick on the news and start worrying and anxiety or trying to figure life out and we haven't gone to God and we're not praying to the Lord and we're not getting direction from His Word, then He's really not the rock that He's talking about. See, we need to trust in Him. We need to find our strength in Him. Over in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Uh, Paul's talking about temptations. He's talking about the Israelites as they were in the desert and all the things that were happening to them. And he said this, And all drank from the same spiritual drink. And they all drank of that spiritual rock that follows them. And that rock, that Petra, was Christ. So even Paul says, listen, even way back in the Old Testament, in the rock, who was that rock representing? Christ. He's always been the rock. Always the rock for his people. He's the foundation, like 1 Corinthians says. He's the foundation stone. Jesus is the rock on which the church would be built, continues to be built, always will have its, its um, getting its strength from. And if you find yourself strengthless, if you find yourself weak, if you find yourself fragile, if you find yourself being tossed to and fro like the, the, the sand in the seashore, then again, we need to go back to the rock. And I think, I really do believe that the Lord lets us go sometimes and just in our own folly and the, and the back and forth. And what is it? There's like a yearning in your heart. There's a yearning in my heart. Lord, I just need fellowship with you. I need to find my strength in you. You find it in him because he is an enduring foundation. How about number two? Let's, let's take this uh, little phrase, I will build my church. Just this little part. I will build those five little words. First of all, I personal involvement. So again, it's, it's not only enduring foundation, but he's going to be personally involved in this process. Personal involvement. I. We haven't been left to this task alone. As Revelation 1.8 says, he is the Almighty One. <laughs> the Almighty. All, all power through him. And like Colossians says, he, he actually holds all things together. We because I, I have a tendency to I have a tendency to follow the functional God of security, and I start worrying, and then at that moment I know I'm I'm following a functional God other than Christ. When I start worrying, it's just like a it's like a red flag. Okay, now I'm starting to follow someone other than Christ. Can't follow Christ and worry, but if you're following something else, you will, or fear, anxiety, whatever else. But He's here. See, it's Christ is here. 
He hasn't left us alone. We're not, we're not islands. We're not orphans. In fact, uh, Colossians 1.27 says that Christ is in us. Now think of it. There's three different things. He's in us. Matthew 28 says He is with us. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Revelation, it says He's walking around in, in, in the midst of His churches, the, the lampstands. In other words, He's among us. He is in us. He is with us. He is among us. He hasn't left us. He hasn't left us. So even at best, as like I am called to be an under-shepherd, He is the chief shepherd. I'll probably fail you. In fact, I can just tell you right now, I'll fail you. There'll be times I'll fail you. There's times that the elders are going to fail you. There's going to be times that the Sunday school teachers are going to fail you. There's going to be times that the home group leaders are going to fail you. By the way, all those things are great. I hope you understand that the whole point of the programs of this church are to try to get us connected more... Uh, 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 more carefully to each other and to the Lord. You know, Lord first, obviously, but I mean, we need to be having interconnection, interconnection with His Word. But there's going to be failure, but He's the chief shepherd. Not only that, He's the good shepherd. I love that. I, he's the good shepherd. Again, sometimes people will fail you, but He's the good shepherd. And I'll tell you what, if you have your eyes on Him, then when people fail you, it's not that, it's not, it's a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, it's people. Of course they're going to fail you at times. Not all the time, but of course they're going to fail you. Why? Well, because we're human. We keep saying we're sinners. <laughs> what do sinners do? Fail each other. What do sinners do? Fail the Lord. But he's the good shepherd. He's the chief one. Personally involved. You know, this is a humbling thought, this, I, this, I, this, this uh, pronoun I. Because he began his church before I arrived, and he will continue it after I'm gone. Unless he returns. Now think about that. He started his church before you got to this earth, and he's going to continue the, the church even after you're gone. That's a humbling thought. We're just a little piece along the way. We're just filling a spot for the time. None of us are indispensable. He'll take us out. Sometimes at points in the time where you think, why? Why did you, why did you remove him? We, I thought we needed him so bad. Personal involvement. Number three, he promised an absolute guarantee. I, next word, will. I will. This is no idle hope. This is a confidence assur uh, 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 assurance. Confident assurance. The church will be triumphant, even though at times it looks very bleak. And at times it does look bleak for the church. At times the church, as far as in other countries, it looks very bleak. Well, they continue on, except, except Jesus said this, I will... And he's not just talking numerically. He's talking about his people. I will build the church. Now, individually, it's like Philippians 1. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, and you will complete it until the day of Christ. If he started in you, he's going to complete it. Now, sometimes we take the, you know, the roads and we get off the path and, you know, we get, and then things start to crumble. And what does he do? Brings us back. There's a plan. But even with his church universal, it's a plan. He's building his church in China. He's building his church in India. He's building, building, but he's a builder. <laughs> Ephesians 5 says that he might sanctify and cleanse her. And there it's not just individuals. He's talking about church universal with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. 
through all the hardships, through all the persecution. I, I was reading a story in uh, Voice of Martyrs uh, magazine, and, and the, the, um, the founder had a, a theology. And if you think of all your theologies, uh, eschatology and uh, um, uh, pneumatology and theology and Christology, but he, he said we need a theology of sufferology. Sufferology. You know, I, I actually agree with him. What is, it, what is he referring to? He's saying, listen, you will suffer. And if somehow you don't think you're going to, and you may not, that you don't think you're going to be maligned by those around you, or mocked by those around you, or maybe even hurt by those around you, it, it's going it, to weaken your faith because somehow you're, you're on the prosperity theology side. And you need to be on the biblical side of saying, you know, that the world hates Christians and they're going to hate you if you act like a Christian. But he, he brought up a story of a, a pastor, uh, Lu Chin. He was attacked in a public meeting by his own daughter. This is what the daughter said. I now accuse my father for the way in which he has bl- uh, blinded me, causing me to lose my standing with the people. The father wept. She continued, Do you think that your false tears are able to bribe my conscience? Jesus said, You know, I've come that even father would be against son and daughter against mother. Can you imagine being hurt by your own, your own family, your own daughter? That's sufferology. What am I getting at? I'm saying it's an absolute guarantee, though, that even through the hardest of times, I will build my church. The church continues on. That man, I believe, had to, had to go to prison Actually, they wanted the death penalty, but I think he was the one that only had to stay five years in prison. But can you imagine? I can't imagine being betrayed by my own daughter. But if your eyes are on Christ, even that doesn't destroy your faith, doesn't destroy the church. The church continues to march on. Why? I will, well, let's look at the next word, build my church. Uh, That's D, powerful advancement. It's advancement. It's not just maintenance. Sometimes we talk about maintenance. But this is the Lord saying, no, I'm going to, it's going to go forward. There's going to be growth. Sometimes explosive growth, like you see in the book of Acts. 3,000 get saved. Added to the Lord. And if you think about it, in the New Testament, before the end of the New Testament, there were churches all around the entire Mediterranean. But again, Satan is, is continuing to do that. I mean, you read of stories like in, in, uh, in uh, Asia, especially, how the Spirit is moving and how the, how the church is advancing, even in the darkest of areas, taking over Satan's strongholds. And he does it through his people. And in fact, in the end of the book of Mark, not Matthew, but Mark, in, in chapter 16, verse 15, he tells his disciples, go into all the world, I underline all, all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, every person needs to hear. So there's quantitative growth, but there's also qualitative. Qualitative. In other words, not only are, is the church moving and people are getting saved, but individuals are moving, becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can have a part in that. And both. I read a while back uh, a quote, and again, as you seek to grow and change, remember, it's not even a partnership with the Lord. I, 
It, it's more, it's, it's the Lord using you. This is what one man said about spiritual growth in your own personal life. Spiritual growth very much involves our activity, but it is an activity that must be carried out in dependence on the Holy Spirit. It is not a partnership with the Spirit in the sense that we each, the believer in the Holy Spirit, do our respective tasks. Rather, we work as He enables us to work. His work lies behind all of our work and makes our work possible. See, there's this dependence. Boy, we've got to have dependence. In fact, let me add the word desperately dependent on Him. Are you desperately depending on Christ, on the Spirit He sent? Remember when Jesus was leaving, He said, listen, I'm going to send you another comforter. And again, I I think a part of uh, uh, Christian growth is over and over and over again, many times through our own failures of realizing, recognizing the fact and saying, Lord, I now get it. I need to be desperately dependent on what the Spirit of God is going to go and do in my life. See, you get saved... And man, isn't it great to know that your, your sins are forgiven? Praise God. And then you start walking with Him, and you fall. And you say, well, I thought everything was supposed to be smooth sailing from here. And then you start, and then before long, maybe failure, failure, failure. Maybe they're in sequential order. But what is one of the things the Lord's teaching you? You needed grace, God's grace, complete grace to save you, You need God's grace to sanctify you. Lord, I have to be desperately dependent on you. The same desperate dependence that saved me. (laughs) Lord, you're the only Savior. Lord, I am a wicked man. I deserve damnation. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, thank you that it's complete there. That's desperate dependence on the Lord. We need desperate dependence on him as we walk with him. Lord, I can't do this. I cannot walk a a single minute without you. If I do, I'm going to be doing it in the flesh. We need to have desperate dependence on Him. That's how we grow. That's how the church moves forward. How about the next thing? I will build my, there again, personal, I, my, I, my church. My church. It's not someone else's building. It's not someone else's church. I like what John 6 says. All that the Father, Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me, will come to me. And the ones who come to me, I will now by no means cast out. I. They're going to come to me. This is my church. These are the ones. You know, I never mentioned it, but it's interesting. Matthew 16, as we're going through this, this is the, this is the first time that church is used in the New Testament. This is the introduction of the church. But he's saying, this is my church. It was purchased with my blood, Acts 20. I have full ownership. In fact, as you go through like the different, even the intros of the New Testament letters, that, you know, we call the, the books of the Bible. Many times it will say it this way, like in Romans chapter uh, uh, 16. Actually, this is the end, but many times in both sides. All the churches of Christ. When, when you say the word of Christ, you know, the churches of Christ, it means, hey, they're his personal possession. They're not my church. In fact, sometimes pastors... I notice maybe other people do this, but I, I will say, you know, referring to another church down the road. Well, that's Ken's church. Uh, oh, that was that was Dave's church. No, no. And I understand what we're trying to say. That's the that's where the pastor is at. But that's not Dave's church. It's like uh, Dan Kenyon used to always say. This is this is Christ's church, right? This is not John's church. This is not Lee's church. This is Christ's church. He says, I will build my church. 
my church. And the next thing is uh, not only personal ownership, but also it's about community. It's about people. F, his promise was about people. See, what is the church? Well, the word church is ecclesia. It means assembly. It means congregation. It means the called out ones. But notice, it's about an assembly. Assembly is not one. Uh, Congregation is not one. Uh, The called out ones, plural, is not one. It's it's the called out ones. It's, so the church is not about an ethical system. It's not about a program. It's certainly not about a building. Although we refer to that, you know, we've come to church. Well, the reality is you. If you didn't show up here, this is just a building. But he, Jesus said, I'll, I'll, I'll build my church. And it's about people. But it's about people, plural. Now, this is real important, and we've hit on it periodically. It's not about you. It's about us. It's about radically being committed to each other. That's why the, the, the phrase, the one another's of Scripture. See, if I, if I do something wrong, even during this week, you know, and you may not even know what I did wrong, but I've actually affected you. Because as we each walk, we're affecting each other. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, plural. And as we look at the church, we want to see it as plural. And as we want to use our spiritual gifts, we need to see it as plural. Many times in Scripture, the you, the, you, you'll see the word you in Paul's talking. He's using it in plural. Often we think of it as you singular, but it's plural. He's always talking about plural. It's us. It's us. You know, uh, with that us, again, we need to be radically committed to community, therefore. Um, which tells me that I need to be committed to some things. Like you think of Hebrews 10, it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We, we shouldn't forsake. Not because it affects you, but it affects us. Okay? That's where we have to get the difference. Uh, you know, it's Sunday morning, and should I go? Well, it affects us, not just you. And Jesus wants to build the church plural, not just one individual. So this... Church here, this points to a commitment to the gathering. We need to be committed to the gathering. In fact, Martin Luther said it this way, listening to God's word and singing to God alone is good, but listening and singing together is better. At home, in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. I like that. Just... Yeah, it's, it's good to worship at home. It's better to worship here because we're together. The group is together. So that word church points to the, the gathering. It also points to the idea of serving. Serving. Because as soon as you get group, now it's like, well, what part am I in the group? Am I the ear? Am I the nose? Am I the eye? What part do I have to play in the group? In fact, that very familiar passage in Ephesians 4. They're talking about the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of what? The individual in Christ. Right? It's about the individual in Christ. No, no, that's not what it says. For the edifying of the body of Christ. See, there again, group. And then he says it this way, till we all come into the unity of the faith and the doctrine of the Son of God and the perfect man. And there he's, he's saying the doctrine... <coughs> 
And the faith is talking about the deep things of the faith and that, that we all should be maturing together and that we're all becoming more and more like the fullness of Christ, like the likeness of Christ. So it's about us running the race, but it's not just me running, it's us running. In fact, when you see the word church, you might put beside it us or we. It's we. So that's the people. It's about community. How about the last? Well, actually two more. And he promised absolute invincibility. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The word gate is used in the Old Testament for death. And the idea here is the realm of the dead. In other words, the realm of the dead is not going to affect the church. It's not going to stop the church. But also gates were used for defensive purposes. Uh, you would have a, uh, a, um, a city, a town, and then there would be a gate. At night, the gates would be closed. And that did two things. One, it didn't allow the enemy to come into the gate, through the gate, to attack the people. But it also kept the people in the city walls. Remember when uh, Samson, he got up at night and he took the gates and he just ran right... See, he was inside. He was getting out. See, gates were primarily defensive. Well, it was defensive. It was not not offensive. It was the purpose to not conquer. It was to protect the people behind the gate. Now, think about the context here. Jesus is saying, listen, I I am going to build my church and even the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. See, within within those gates are all these people that are held by Satan's lies. All the people that are damned. All the people that are against me. All those who hate the gospel. And you know what? The church and the gospel, because again, the church represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even, even the gates of Hades cannot stop it. The, the, the gospel is so powerful, it can even ram through the gates of Hades to rescue the people that are damned by the lies of Satan. That's what he's saying. That, the, this, that, the, that my church will continue and all can be saved. There's no one that's going to be protected in the gates of Hades. And they're damned and they're just going to be damned and there's no hope because the gospel could never reach them. No, no. The, the gospel is even for them. And do you know anybody like that? And you might put them right in that camp. And yes, they are 50-some years old and they've been living a life of vice their entire life and there is no hope. Jesus is saying, no, no, you just got it wrong. The whole point is that there is hope. <laughs> you can't prevail. I mean, that's what's so wonderful when you see a person come to Christ. You think there was no hope. Well, again, in ourselves, we're all dead. It is, we're all blind. We're all hopeless. But then Christ, by His Spirit, breaks through. And the church breaks through with the gospel. I say the church because we carry the message. And even the very gates of Hades will not prevail. There's no hold on them. Death, and, and not only that, but it talks, I think it's also referring to the fact that death itself, once you're in the family of God, has no hold on you. See, that's the other part, because uh, the idea of gates of Hades was used for death itself. And so I believe he's referring to the fact that all can be saved, and once you get saved, the gates of Hades has no, uh, no hold on you. It's like what 
Christ said in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have hope. We have hope in Christ. So again, do you, do you sense that hope? Do you sense the fact that the worst that the world can throw at you is physically to die? <laughs> and in one very real sense, that is a... Um, oh, I just lost it. That is a... Um, help me out. That is a um, graduation. That is really what that is. Right? Do we see death as a graduation? I mean, it's being with... By the way, I'm not saying that I'm hoping to die today. I, I can't say it that way. But I would say this, I need to see death properly. It's not a defeat. It's a victory. And then finally, he promised privileged authority. Privileged authority. And I will give you, give you the disciples, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the, the, the idea of key was a sign of authority. What is he talking about? What do you mean he gives you the keys? I mean, keys were given to a trust to a trusted steward, if somebody that you could trust. But I, he's saying, "Listen, I'm giving you the key. The key is this: the authority to proclaim the truths of who Jesus Christ was. It goes right back to that I am the Son of the Living God. And, and disciples, I'm giving you the key. I'm giving you the ability to unlock the gate that is holding the prisoners in. And you might say, "Well, how do you do that? Well, that's spiritual warfare." That's like 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where it says casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the, the Son of God. Okay, It's when we present truth. That's the key. That's what unlocks the prisoner from the lies of Satan, from the lies of damnation. He's saying, I'm giving you the keys. What have you done with your key? What have you given with the key of truth? See, we've been given truth and there are prisoners, those who are damned. Are you bringing the, the truth? That's what he's saying. I, I want you to take the truth and present it to those who are captives and release them through truth, the gospel. Tell them that Jesus Christ offered once for their sins to bear all their sins and that they can be forgiven if they receive him. And you know what? That's what happened with Peter. Do you remember what he did on the day of Pentecost? He took the key, he took the gospel to the Jews. He preached to them and he released them. And then he took the same and he released the Gentiles starting with Cornelius. The truth released Cornelius from damnation and the Jews from damnation. And when you share the good news of salvation in Christ, again found in his word, you are unlocking the truth whereby one can escape the wrath of God in hell and able to enter heaven, which is the kingdom. So that's why he says, I'm... I'm Oh, look at the last part. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I.e., and as you present truth, as you preach truth, that same type is found in Matthew 18, just a couple chapters later. As you present truth, the truth of his word, you know what God says? I agree. And I agree. And if you say that only through Jesus Christ that you can be forgiven, I agree. Bound in heaven, bound on earth. All right? He's agreeing with us. The power is not in me. The power is in the truth. But God's agreeing. He's saying, listen, follow the scriptures. Follow the truth. Present the gospel. And God agrees. I've given you the key. Some of us are walking around with keys and we never use them. I think of an illustration one time where a guy, he, uh, he was a preacher and he had to go to this home. And um, 
he, it, it, the funny thing was, is, is he was dropped off and he didn't have, uh, he didn't have a car. He was just dropped off. And he was supposed to go to this home, find the key, get in, warm house on the other side. Okay. He went to the door, knocked, forgetting this is what, it, what he missed. That one, the people were not home and the people had already told him where the key was and he couldn't remember. So the key was there, like under the mat or somewhere. And here's the guy and he's banging and banging and banging and before long he gets discouraged and frustrated. So he starts walking back to find the next home and it says like, he, you know, like he's going down, been in a, a snowy, uh, wet road and he falls off into the ditch and he gets dirty and all this other stuff happens to him and finally he gets to the next home and calls his friend that had dropped him off originally and he said, well, don't you remember that the guy said the key was right under the... In other words, he was, he was struggling, he was frustrated, he was hurt. And But you, you put that in the context of this. Sometimes we have the key. It's truth. And we are frustrated and irritated and we're trying to help people, but we forget the key. We forget everything that God has given to us. We forget all the truths of Scripture, but yet somehow we're trying to help people. You've got to get them to the truth. You've got to get them to Christ. That's the point. You've got to get them to Christ. Remember, He has given you the key. Make sure we always go back to the truth of Scripture and the Christ of Scripture. Because there is where we find hope. Amen? Let's stand as we worship Him.